Welcome to Philosophy AU, the show where we analyse and explore the modern world through a philosophical lens. We're going to walk through the biggest questions thoughtfully and honestly, getting back to the roots of philosophy so that we can use wisdom and knowledge to actually live a better life. Thank you so much for joining in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Right, perfect. We are here um, with the first episode of Philosophy AU, and I'm here with the resident rationalist, Mr. Lyndon Purcell. Lyndon, welcome. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to this discussion. Cool. Pleasure to have you. So, I guess um, we'll just start by explaining a bit about like what what we're actually doing here, like what I'm trying to do with this thing. Um, you've got a lot of your own stuff going on as well, so maybe... Uh, I'll let you start. So just so you've got your own blog, explain a bit about that, and um, I don't know some of what you're thinking about with it. Yeah. So I, for as long as I can remember, I've probably been what someone would describe as a thinker. Um, well, obviously we all think to some degree, um, but I probably garnered a bit of a reputation for it and enjoyed it, and at sort of a certain point I decided that I or I realized that I do really want to put my thoughts out there um, this sort of didn't happen at any one point but I guess progressively people had told me things that like oh you you think about things in a really interesting manner or that's a unique perspective as mm-hmm. we all do have um, to some degree and yeah people I guess got some enjoyment out of my thoughts and I realized that by writing down my thoughts I get a lot out of the process as well um Mm. I yeah it tends to clear up my thinking so sort of that all converged on having my own blog and the purpose of the blog is probably summarized around just like generally improved understanding i have a quite a tendency towards efficiency (laughs) except for the spoken word (laughs) um so yeah like whenever people have some kind of goal if they're not going about that in something approximating the most efficient manner then Mm. i think you have no real right to complain i guess if that makes sense yeah not that Not that you need a right to complain, but I guess what I'm saying is we have a tendency to complain Mm. and there's lots of things that all of us don't have that we want. And if we're not going about achieving those things in something approximating the right way, then I think it's it's a bit circular at that point. So generally speaking, that's what rationality kind of means to me it's like thinking about things in the correct manner um based on evidence or the way you know however you decide that and then taking the most uh, effective action from that point and these are sort of the things that i write about Hmm. yeah so what's like um your uh, i don't i'm not really liking using the term goal here because it seems like it's reducing it down to like something trite or like something not 
important. Uh, I don't know, but like, what's your overall vision? Yeah, like, what's your north star? I guess that everything's the writing is around, and like, what you're thinking about, if there is one. Yeah, I. Okay, you're familiar with the Flynn effect. Yeah, the the IQ that changes over time, right? Yeah, effectively, like there has been um, standard or the reference changes. Yeah, the the average IQ has effectively risen mm. for you know whether we are now smarter. That's a different question, more intelligent. Mm. Um, that's a different question, but for whatever intelligence tests measure, there there has been an increase in that thing over time. So they yeah. need to be renormalized. Yeah. If we're talking like North North Star, I would like to be one of the people that contributes to that sort of like increased conceptual mm. understanding on a sort of societal level. Like a lot of the Flynn effect, I believe, can be explained by uh, nutrient deficiencies and things like that. Like, or oh, just like the complexity of technology or full bladders full bladders (laughs) um uh, operating in the opposite direction (laughs) but i guess what my ambition with the blog is is for people to read it to somehow interpret the world in a better manner whatever that might mean to them whether it allows them to mitigate their own pain and suffering to sort of understand what might bring meaning from a sort of philosophical perspective or how to just be more productive and concentrate and be less distracted on a practical basis so so i guess like uh is this a way to put it that your goals are for people to have the tools to be able to reach their goals in life properly without necessarily like taking a normative approach with ethics or morality or values. Like you're not necessarily saying like, this is what you should value. You're saying that given that you value this, these set of tools, i.e. rationality and logic, whatever else, scientific method or science is going to help you get there. Yeah. I I think it's probably a mix of both. Um, I was speaking with a friend yesterday who was talking about a, um, Asata, Jean Jean Sata, or however oh, Jean Paul Sartre. Jean Paul Sartre, <laughs> um, existentialist. Yeah, yeah, the one of his quotes um, that basically like your behavior is a vote for how you think mm. people should be. Mm. That's really good. So, I probably write about to some degree um, tools for rationality and one's own enhanced productivity or conceptual understanding of the world. But the, the meta view of that point is me suggesting that that's an important thing and we should all be doing more of that. Yeah. So, because like I often struggle with like as yeah I've said heaps before is just um, just like what, yeah your values and what they're grounded in and like why why you ought to value this over that and like I think 
you know, perhaps we'll talk about animals as well later, but like, I think that's one thing. It's like, why should you, why should you even value that? And I don't like, I don't know if there's a right answer to that question, but I guess like given that we value the things that we do, there are wrong and wrong, there are right and wrong answers and right and wrong ways to go about achieving those things. And it's, it's worthy and productive to figure out what those things are. Yes. Um, you might need to rephrase your question. <laughs> yeah. Like perhaps it wasn't really a question. Um, but maybe I'll ask you this question because it's something I was going to ask Howard as well. Like, do you, uh, I guess I already know the answer, but oh, maybe when I put it this way, like, do you think rationality, like, is, would you bestow upon everyone the skill of rationality, not in a vacuum, not in like a, a magical genie way, but in a realistic way of um, all the other constraints and externalities that come along with it? Like, when I think about myself, and you're probably the same in a lot of ways, like, the path to get to this point of being a someone who's <laughs> less wrong about some things <laughs> than, than others and who is uh, slightly more rational than he used to be and values these things. Like there's a lot of things that I've foregone. There's a big opportunity cost to that is basically what I'm getting at. Um, like do you think that like or would you think that's a valuable goal for everyone to have given the other externalities and given the other given the constraints and is that making sense yeah i think you're asking or i'm at least interpreting two questions there maybe let's start with let's actually take rationality in a vacuum first because that might be yeah easier and then let's consider the second question if you don't mind just is the process of gaining knowledge something useful to do Mm -hmm. like for the cost benefit analysis Mm. so taking rationality in a vacuum first i think let's say could we snap our fingers and increase everybody's rationality by something significant say 50 percent whatever double everyone's rationality Mm. Would that be a good thing? And I think there would be a lot of people that pull back from that idea instantly and think, mm. oh, the arts might suffer. Um, you know, what? what is that going to mean if we're all, we're all going to be more of a similar person, mm. say. We're all going to have more, we're all going to look more like Sheldon Cooper than, <laughs> you know, mm. anyone else who isn't Sheldon Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that is an error to think that. And obviously this is all tainted with my own personal biases, but let's take the arts. Say you're a struggling artist. I think if you are more rational, you should have some kind of conception of because let's say there is a science of creativity, okay? If there are mm. if there are ways we can more reliably generate creative outcomes, then going about that is a more reliable way of generating creative yeah. outcomes. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is like 
a fully internalized, I think, conception of reality, uh, sorry, rationality should still, should probably not only produce, still produce art, but mm. probably produce art without yeah. the suffering and the, you know, maybe 10 years of in- inactivity between say like mm. awesome albums or whatever it might be. Mm. It's again, just at least from my own perspective, it's an efficiency kind of route. It's making, establishing the most knowledge about the world given the evidence and yeah, that kind of stuff. Perhaps like maybe then we'll just nail down like a, a definition for rationality. Like this is one thing I spoke with Howard about as well. Um, but I'm pretty sure it just comes from Ilias. That's the like the contrast between what people think is like that cold Mr. Spock rationality versus what it maybe not what it actually is or I don't know. Is that the right way to put it? Like what rationality actually means versus what people conceive it to mean. And they're just like putting up this straw man. So like you're good at talking about how rationality plays in with emotions. So maybe just like give me that definition of like how emotions, it emotions aren't antithetical to the concept of rationality. They're one part of it. Yeah. So you, you mentioned uh, the, the sort of Mr. Spock archetype and mm. that's probably going to land on, maybe deaf ears isn't the right way to describe it, but it's not going to be meaningful to people, say our age, who didn't grow up with Star Trek (laughs) anyway. But the, you know, the Sheldon Cooper is actually the, our modern version of what we think of rationality. So in the, uh, the rationality sort of sphere, um, which I'd I'd certainly, it'd be remiss of me if I didn't mention um, less wrong, where I guess I've, that's been an Ilya Ziedkowski who's been very formative in my thinking among others. Like there's, you know, he's certainly not say the first rationalist writer, but was Mm. big on building a rationalist community. Um, I believe it was Julia, Julia Galef. Um, I might be miss, misremembering that name. Um, I'm sorry if so. Um, but I believe she presented the idea of the, the straw Vulcan, which is so Mr. Spock was um, part part human, part Vulcan, which was like say a purely logical rationality, uh, rational alien species. Mm. So Spock is sort of that archetype of he has the the Vulcanism kind of Vulcanian <laughs> trait of yeah. like being logical, but then his human side gets in the way occasionally, and he's mm. sort of reduced by his emotions. Mm. So what's spoken about in the rationality kind of sphere is the straw Vulcan, like the straw Vulcan is basically the straw man version Mm. of rationality. It's like that, that actually isn't true rationality. Cool. So rationality requires an extremely conceptual and, and fully internalized view. Like emotions exist within the universe that we exist within and Mm. it's not kind of like yeah if we just silo off this part then we'll be able to deal with all this over here in a successful manner like emotions are part of our human evolution part of our brain chemistry and things like that it is completely rational to feel happy about good outcomes and completely say rational to feel sad about negative ones um so 
some kind of view of rationality needs to incorporate that. And I've, I've said mm. a bit there, so I might let One you... One thing that like Howard and I did talk about was um, that you can be rational yet wrong and you can be irrational yet right, correct on a matter, which I think sort of speaks to how like values fit into it and how it's it's not it's not like abstract mathematics necessarily where there's uh i don't i don't know i don't want to say where there's right and wrong answers but i mean like that uh okay so like perhaps we'll just gently touch on the political divides or maybe we'll go down a rabbit hole (laughs) we'll see (laughs) but like the uh you know the the visions that people have and we've, we've talked about this before that like it's what they're doing say on the other side whichever side you may fall on is rational behavior given their worldview but it may not necessarily be the right thing for them to do not given your worldview but given even their worldview say i might i might have a goal uh i know i know i also have a vision and a a map of how the world is i may i may act rationally given my vision but it may not be the best thing to do given my goal yes i believe so but i would need to check this against your thinking so you can be in my conception you can be rational and wrong but being rational entails that you do what looked like the most logical and prob- probable thing for you for you that you can see yes because because there's things that you can't see it still might be wrong it's sort of yeah like so there is at some absolute sense like a perfect most logical rational thing to do like there is a you know, a straight line you can draw from where you are to where you want to go. You just don't know where that line is exactly or how to achieve mm. where you want to go perfectly. And I guess the process of rationality is minimizing how many flawed steps you can take along the way to get to wherever you're trying to go. Mm. Does that align with what you were... Yeah, absolutely. Um, so perhaps we'll bring like ethics into it now and morality. Uh, like, oh, Hang on, let me, sorry, let me give hopefully a concrete example. Yeah, go. Let's say you and I are sitting here. We've got uh, three tennis balls and one golf ball. Mm-hmm. We hold the all the balls behind our back someone comes through that door and we say, um, we tell them the setup and say, you know, Josh is holding or we're together. We are holding three tennis balls and one golf ball Mm. behind our back. What is Josh's left hand holding? Okay. And the most, the rational answer is the tennis ball. Okay, so there's there's three tennis balls mm, and like only probabilistically. one. Probabilistically. Yeah, probabilistically, yeah. the rational answer is the tennis ball, mm. but that doesn't actually... What the probabilistic answer is, is still no guarantee of... Mm. Like that is still decoupled from, to some degree, mm. what actually exists in your hand. 
Mm. So you're getting at that again, that given the knowledge that you have, that is a rational decision to make, but it's still, is it right to say like it still may be wrong or is it still probably, no, it's not probably wrong. It still just may be wrong. Yeah, there's there's always a possibility of being wrong, but it is reducing the probability of being wrong. Yeah, good one. Uh, have you heard of? Um, I don't think I've ever talked about this with you before. Have you heard of Gettier problems? Yes, I believe I've I've probably come across the name on the uh, the Stanford uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, I'll butcher it, but here we go. So, basically, what is knowledge is the starting question. Uh, first of all, like, do you have thoughts about that? Uh, not ones <laughs> that make sense. <laughs> <laughs> or you can encapsulate into words. Uh, okay, so I guess like a common theory of knowledge is justified true belief. So, one, you believe it. Um, two, you're justified in believing that for some reason so you have some evidence i guess and two that it's true so you could be justified in believing something that's wrong but that wouldn't be knowledge Um, you could believe something that's right but you had no evidence of it but that wouldn't be knowledge because you i guess like the intuition is like that wouldn't really be knowledge like where was your what are you basing that off that's basically just faith. Um, it would be great if I had some like concrete examples of this, but I don't. Uh, do you? Uh, I don't have concrete examples, but uh, as I said, like I've I've heavily been heavily influenced by uh, like Iliezer's less wrong writings, and he basically considers that one one of or possibly the most foundational sort of questions set of questions to ask yourself as a rationalist is what do you think you believe and why do you think you believe it? Mm. So I guess what he's leveraging there is the the justified mm. part of, it's like whether something is true will probably never, mm. we'll never be able to conclusively determine, uh, like, yeah, if it's a golf ball in your hand, we can, well, you know, maybe you could come up with some theory of mm. this is a computer simulation, did that actually yeah. occur, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But for the most part, We'll never have certainty over if our beliefs are true, but calibrating that justification is probably where rationality comes in. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so the Gettier problems, I guess, is like a, perhaps like an anomaly, an anomaly to the justified true belief model. Uh, where is this the clock one? Possibly like a wrong stopped clock. Uh, um, I don't that may be one but that's not necessarily I think the classic example is like the coins in your pocket I don't know if you've heard this so I'll give it a go there's like um, two people waiting in a waiting room they've just interviewed for a job Um, one of the purse one of the guys is like playing with coins in his hand and the other guy sees it. And anyway, he puts the coins in his pocket. Uh, and it just so happens that the guy who saw the other guy putting the coins in his pocket also has coins in his pocket. Um, and I think it's like someone sort of comes out 
and says, all right, uh, like we're probably going to give it to this guy who's playing with the coins. Um, and I'm probably skipping a few steps here, but basically the justified, tr- maybe like the justified true belief at that stage is the person that has the coins visually is going to get the job. And then it's like the other guy gets the job. He also had coins in his pocket. So it was a justified true belief in the end. But it's like not necessarily what happened or what was going to happen. Yeah, possibly let me... And I'm drawing this up from the the dregs of long-term memory here. Like, I'm just going to completely ignore what you said. Not that it wasn't relevant, (laughs) but I'm just going to check the conceptual understanding here. So... Um, I think the example I read went something along the lines of um, there's say there's a a clock in some public public mm. area at a university or something like that. A student is um, rushing rushing to his next class. He looks up and it's like oh it's midday. It's like you know shoot I'm late. Mm. And let's say that clock had actually stopped at midnight the Mm. night before Mm. like does that student have knowledge of the time okay he's justified in thinking that the the clock is useful for telling him the time Mm. it's true it is say it is midday Mm. sorry that's the thing it is midday but the clock stopped at midnight yeah and so it's justified it's true and he believes it Mm. okay like does he actually have knowledge of the time my intuition is no, like he doesn't have knowledge of the time. And I guess that indicates that I believe there is something left on the table by the justified true belief mm. framework. Yeah, there's like an awkward little crinkle in trying to say that he had knowledge. But can you, like, can you put your finger on what that crinkle is? Yeah, I think it'd be an, uh, it would be a revealed inconsistency. Mm. Like, if he stood there for five minutes longer, then oh. it it would turn out to be not true. So I think knowledge. I think that's the important part about truth is truth is stable over time, or like let's say. Maybe not. Maybe reality isn't actually the right way to frame it. There must be some kind of time consistency between truth. Mm. Like if you take a snapshot of whatever, some conception of truth now and in fifty years' time, for it to be true, it still ne- it needs to be true now and in fifty years' time. Yeah. Like it can't have been. I'm not sure how that reasoning plays out entirely, but I guess all I'm saying is that there needs to be some kind of time consistency. Yeah, I guess you're a, um, you'd probably call yourself a realist or a purist with truth. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I am actually a bit of a loss when it comes to sort of philosophical categories. I know we've spoken about <laughs> this before. Aren't we just? Um, <laughs> I 
conceptually categories are important, but I think I actually put less stock in them probably than the average person. I know like yeah. that it's not clear cut. Um, and I know you, you don't think that the world can be perfectly divided into categories, but possibly you may, you may see greater utility in naming things than what I do. And not that that's, yeah, that's just a, a comparative analysis. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say, like what came to mind was, I guess, like thought experiments and taking things to the extreme with the, so like thought experiments, the idea behind thought experiments is to test a, not a belief, but to test a concept or a theory to its extreme to see if it holds up. Like that's the classic trolley problem like that's a thought experiment to test your moral intuitions and if they hold up at the extremes uh, but like i don't know how i feel about that like so like did you end up like watching michael sandell's justice much like his that whole course is basically built on these sort of thought experiments and like obviously there's a lot of utility in arguing around it and back and forth but he bases it on like putting out a thought experiment and watching people sort of and like facilitating that. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that being a useful method to actually maybe achieve anything or to actually come away with some useful <laughs> or extrapolate some useful insights because like I feel like there's obvious there's obvious answers to some things. But for the most part, I think we're arguing at the margin and like you're arguing about, about the edge cases a lot of the time. Um, and like thought experiments are obviously just talking about um, like one, they're in a vacuum obviously and they're just talking about these extreme cases where, uh, I don't know, I guess where there aren't those externalities or there aren't those other constraints um i don't know exactly what i'm getting at here but i yeah. think i i might um have some use here uh, i will say i think thought experiments can be useful but often they are used in an unuseful manner or an unproductive manner hmm. um say like possibly the free will debate falls into that category. Like either free will does or doesn't exist and arguing about it really isn't going to change sort of the answer. Um, and if we have an answer, how useful will that be mm. anyway? Um, yeah. However, I do think thought experiments are useful. Let's say we have a question to answer or something we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. my belief is that thought experiments should help us reduce the possible answer space from something infinite to something finite. Okay. By sort of like, mm -hmm. it should be going, okay, let's say you, we spoke before about is knowledge acquisition a useful, useful endeavor. Mm. So what we do is we turn certain variables to extreme to extremes hmm. and we say okay does someone 
someone spends every waking moment of every day like acquiring knowledge well that's probably probably unproductive because the purpose of knowledge is hopefully to do something even more productive with it Mm. okay so that's Mm. that's a corner case that isn't or that's given us a margin on one side and then we say okay say someone doesn't acquire any knowledge throughout their life which would i don't even i think that would literally just (laughs) look like sorry be impossible or no, no, like let's say let's say someone's brain is, or like they don't even have a brain. Mm. We have a a sentient being, mm. or like who even knows if you'd be sentient without mm. acquiring knowledge. But say someone exists with zero knowledge, I would say mm. that even looks like they can't move. Like yeah. movement probably requires some knowledge. Well, yeah, this is definitely like there are definitely some people in that case. Like this disability book, there are some people like that have conditions where. So he talks about all they can do is they can't even eat. They can't speak, look. They're literally, they can sometimes smile. And there's, there's, some, um, there's some indications that they're sentient and that's about it. But yeah. yeah, so I guess that's obviously very sad um, for people that, that go through something like that. But her, the purpose, of, I think, of thought experiments to tie that back in is those kinds of people would benefit from having more knowledge Mm. and the person who does nothing but read books every single day to do nothing else Mm. should probably now you could you could say that if they stopped doing this they would actually be acquiring knowledge in some other domain so maybe that's philosophically problematic, but all I'm saying is thought experiments should give us some corners or some, Mm. it should chop away some of the the fatty tissue so we can get to the meat of the problem. Mm. So I think they are useful in that regard if they allow us to turn certain variables to extremes. However, using thought experiments to battle back and forth once we've Mm. pretty much approximated a socially useful answer i Mm. think is that's where philosophy gets a bit of a bad name yeah i that's probably what i was getting at. i agree with that like um because like in this struggle to try and figure out what my moral compass is like i think because i think we were speaking about this once but like i was thinking that it needed to be one answer because of these thought experiments and then when you get challenged with a thought experiment you're like oh pff, shoot maybe maybe that doesn't fit and that's what i'm talking about like so basically i've come to the conclusion that and i think i just stole this off you because <laughs> you said it to me once <laughs> but that um you have like large rules of thumb that make up most of your moral compass and then these other tools to use in certain situations as well so like largely context specific but you've still got these central guiding points that you're that probably undergirds the whole thing so like to to use myself as an example i think what i'm getting at um for myself is like 
believing in sort of libertarian values and agency and autonomy, um, but also like heavily influenced by sort of a utilitarian framework where like you, I don't know, where where you want to value, like where other people's value is just as valuable as yours. Um, but then like if, if I'm challenged on like a, a utilitarian um, thought experiment where it's like the classic sacrifice one for the many, I, I probably wouldn't do that. Like I'd probably fall back to like a Kant sort of everyone has uh, moral worth and inherent worth because we're capable of rational um, thought and reason. So we have this inherent worth and dignity. So therefore we shouldn't like, we shouldn't use people as means to an end. We should use people as ends or they should be treated as ends in themselves. So that's where I would pull away from utilitarianism to more of like, I guess that would be like a deontological ethic of like rules um, where like, it's never okay to kill someone. Like perhaps that's like a good, um, foundational rule um, so yeah I guess like what do you think about where your morality lies and like what's yours made up of yeah so I'd probably probably start with uh, the one of our initial conversations around this topic where I, I basically said like you shouldn't be completely loyal to any one idea if that idea doesn't contain all the answers. Mm. So what I sort of, that seems kind of um, obvious, but what I get, what I guess I'm getting at there is no, I'm not going to be completely loyal to utilitarianism. If utilitarianism cannot completely explain, say the trolley problem. Mm -hmm. So I think you need some kind of disloyalty within your ideas or like the way you you build your own framework Mm. um so i'll say that as a as a preface and i would say i am uh i'm quite well informed by or my my framework is uh significantly informed by utilitarianism and what Mm. i get out of that is that uh, welfare between individuals is comparable. Um, mm. There is some way of sort of quantifying how much welfare someone experiences. My experience of welfare is not fundamentally different from your experience of welfare. And we theoretically have some way of calculating mm. everyone's experience of welfare and should gravitate towards ways of having people experience the most welfare possible so with libertarianism the idea that you have value and agency and autonomy that um i guess presupposes that other people also have it and that's where that's where it is a useful framework is because it's like so I think a common argument against libertarianism is that it is like a selfish framework or it's a selfish ideology. Uh, but I guess um, 
maybe that's like a straw man because again like the idea that I have autonomy and um, worth as an individual and agency mean not doesn't mean that I can do whatever I want it means that we all have to respect each other's so if I recognize my own I have to recognize yours as well uh, yeah yeah I I think I'm following what you're saying there um, I thought that so I wasn't sorry suggesting that let's say your life should mean as much to me as my life should mean to me. Like I'm mm. saying I'm well informed by utilitarianism and that I recognize that your life should mean something, even if it doesn't mean say as much to me, you know, maybe mm. there's, there's a bit of a peak around how I feel about my life, yeah. but the value of other lives shouldn't drop to zero. Yeah. So I guess there's, there's that element. And now let's take libertarianism as an idea to, uh, I believe it was the, the three languages of politics that I, that I picked this up from that, um, which you graciously sent to me. (laughs) (laughs) Who's that? Not Howard someone. Mm, Name Kling, something Kling. Yeah, I I thought it was Howard Kling. But maybe Potentially. Arnold Kling. Arnold Kling. Yeah, it's one of those <laughs> one of those old guy names. <laughs> Howard Arnold. Yeah. Um, that was good actually. Yeah, I didn't read Dole. I read some select chapters, but mm. I was guess I was going to. I liked his framing that sort of fundamentally libertarianism is the belief in human rationality. Mm. Um, like sort of on average, mm. uh, like I have maybe a more skeptical, like humans do things that approximate useful answers, put it that way. Mm. Um, That's a good way to put it. So let's say we think utilitarianism rather than, oh, sorry, libertarianism is Mm. the right way to act because it's sort of like this this individual out approach. It's just like, mm. no, I believe in your rationality and my rationality and blah, mm. blah, blah. And that's going to allow us to live the best way. And if that's true, I still think that holds within a utilitarian framework. It's like if a libertarian approach allows us to maximize the most welfare by the most people overall, mm. then the two are still consistent where you might run into problems i think is say we have utilitarianism associated with sort of a collectivist culture Mm. and then you've got libertarian associated with a more individualistic culture yeah i guess um they come into tension uh i guess they come into tension with the classic thought experiment the utilitarian thought experiment like do you see them coming into tension there like Yes, saving that one life, uh, I guess, um, what would you, uh, conceding that one life or killing that one life, sacrificing is the word, sacrificing that one life for the five is the utilitarian answer, but would it not, it wouldn't be the libertarian answer, would it? That's where they're coming to tension, right? Because where is that person's agency and autonomy to not be killed? At this point, yeah, I guess they do come into tension, but I guess this probably actually is the point where I 
lose interest in the things if <laughs> yeah. you that. Yeah. So we were speaking about the thing that we don't basically don't care about. Yeah, like I just feel like that's it's kind of like too much maths in my mind lately, but it's it's kind of like solve for X, but I'm not going to tell you why. Yeah, right. Like or what you know, why the letter? Because like mm, mm. to completely quantify all of, like mm. people's lives aren't just reduced to numbers okay mm. so that like that is if that's what you're going to say utilitarian is mm. utilitarianism is then i won't say completely stand by that numbers by mm. mean i mean like if there's five people over here and one over there then i i need to save the five people but then it's we have qualities to the quantity it's like if they're mm. five prisoners versus you know one mother teresa then you need a more effective way of slicing that than just going no i'm not saying like a prisoner's life doesn't matter mm. and that you know mother teresa's mm. you know uh, is more important than everyone's but it's that there are sort of multipliers attached mm. to the number of individuals or to attached yeah. to each individual i think this is a classic the classic problem that I guess like veganism deals with or and like perhaps that's a good segue into that but that it's the I think it has a name but it's like the utility comparison problem where it's like it's fundamentally impossible to compare the utility of one like of different people but then two just gets off the charts when you're talking about different species as well. Um, so, like, for example, who's to say that... The basic example, who's to say that my pleasure eating this steak should be less worth than that cow's life is worth? Who's to say that that's wrong? Um, I guess that's the the problem that like animal liberation that's the major flaw behind it or that's the problem to deal with but i think like like yes i see that as an issue um obviously but i do think that it's like almost just like a waste of time to be not a waste of time but i think it's a distraction and an excuse that people make because I think, I think this is just one of those cases where it's like, okay, this seems to be a pretty obvious answer. Um, and that you're getting hung up on a technical point that you can't do the calculus of valuing people's utility or different species utility. So you're just going to rest on that rather than sort of um, dealing with the obvious point or, I don't know. Like, did that bring up thoughts for you? <laughs> Does that make any sense? Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, so, like, where I do think thought experiments, say, again, to circle back there, back mm. there can be useful is, or, like, just counterfactuals or hypothesizing mm. just um 
I think what is a more extreme and possibly useful example is let's say plants can experience welfare. It's like, mm. yeah, there, there's a few few animals in comparison to a lot of plants. It's just like at the moment, we, human welfare seems to be sort of like the thing that we prize the most, then other great apes, then sort mm. of it's a pretty steep drop off. Mm. Other animals, plants, we don't even consider. But mm. if from a, say, utilitarian perspective, if plants could experience pain, pleasure, blah, 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 and even if they experienced it at, you know, 1% of what we do, mm. then plants would actually have more, uh, greater sort of utilitarian welfare associated with them than mm. humans because there's just obviously magnitudes, greater amounts of plants. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess what I'm just saying there is like there is a again a quality and a quantity perspective like even if mm. humans do carry the the quality of the most intense experience of pleasure mm. or pain there's not that many humans compared to plants and mm. then with animals sitting in between so then to address the point of there does seem to be an obvious answer uh yeah like i agree ish with you i agree that like to us there does seem to be mm. an obvious answer but mm. you know we both grew up rurally mm. and for the most part sort of like farming and things like that are very mm. um big in those areas and well actually maybe that was a poor example because i would say at least the farming i grew up around it was concerned with like animal and welfare, welfare it, it wasn't yeah. actually like those things aren't sentient. But yeah. there is definitely some of those ideas that float around those circles that, you know, it's just a cow or whatever. I it you know, mm. it doesn't know anything or it doesn't experience anything substantial. Um so is it kind of comparable, say like say I can't drive I can't drive my car. Okay, it's like for some reason, like something's not working and someone comes along. I'm like, oh, the, you know, there's something wrong with the engine. They're like, oh, well, like prove, prove there's something wrong with the engine. It's like, I'm like, well, I don't understand the details and the semantics of it, but just like mm. conceptually there's this, there seems to be something wrong. And like, just because I can't take you from A to Z of the problem mm. doesn't mean that I'm not correct. Is that mm. kind of similar to what you're sort of saying with the, the animal welfare thing? Yeah, basically I think that hits the nail on the head. Like you can, like there's an obvious and like when I'm saying obvious, I mean like, I don't know, I guess you can see it. Like it doesn't take much mental work to see an animal suffering. Like it's, it's quite intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like, again, I think that comes back to being biological and, everything like that. Uh, so, it, yeah, like I said, I think you can see the problem just because there are perhaps steps along the way that you can't walk through that maze or describe it. That being the utility calculus or the calculating those um, or comparing those utility functions that... Like, I don't think it follows that that there's nothing to do about it or, like, it doesn't follow that, therefore, you ought not to do anything about it just because 
I don't know. Do you, or maybe that's like, or maybe you, or maybe you ought to figure out what those middle steps are to figure out if it is a real problem. Maybe even though it looks like they're suffering, maybe they're really not. And maybe the way to answer that question is to figure out the calculus. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, let me possibly layer in some thoughts. When, say, you're confronted with someone who said, like, who poses that argument that you suggested that, well, who's to say that my experience of pleasure from eating this steak isn't comparable to the displeasure of the cow being killed or, mm. or whatever? Um, I think at that point, we then think, okay, just on an absolute scale, sort of like, are you, say, better off than the cow? Like, are you are you in a state where you have, like, more pleasure than pain? Um, you're just at a, a good general state of welfare. And if so, then I think your gain in pleasure is actually, you know, less important than the cow's or the mitigation mm. of pain. And... A possibly comparable example is how we see the comparison of money and value. Mm -hmm. So a thousand dollars to someone with zero dollars is worth more than a thousand dollars to someone with um, you know, ten million dollars. So let's say there is an equivalent transfer of pleasure gain versus pain experienced and i don't think that would actually be true i think the calculus mm. on that would be skewed towards way more pain and displeasure mm. experience than um and we might look at something like loss aversion as mm. uh sort of some mm. reasoning power there um maybe just um like clear up that exact point so like basically you're saying that you there is more of a bottomless pit with with pain and loss than there is a roofless roofless up with yeah. pleasure and good there seems to be some kind of limit on the amount of uh pleasure that we can experience but pain can sort of like it can always get worse mm. to a degree um and just from an aversion perspective i would say like we're more inclined like we sort of hate in sort of, or like we, we try to move away from things that cause loss at about three times the rate that we mm. try to move towards things that cause or that, that allow us to acquire gain or reward. Mm. Like we just, most of life is getting away from pain than mm. it is from acquiring pleasures. And so sometimes they go hand in hand. You'd pay like three times as more to avoid a bad situation than you would to get a good situation. Yeah, sort I guess of. Because you like, need to put numbers on it, but yeah. Yeah, but I guess like how angry did you feel about losing, you know, mm. $50 in comparison to how good did it feel to get $50? Mm. It's like I'm, I was three times more mad about needing to pay that fine. It's like. You know, say your nan sends you a hundred dollars in the mail, <laughs> like yeah, and links Africa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or it's like, or you get 
it's like you get the ten like hundred dollars you're like oh sweet hundred dollars but then you get a hundred dollar fine and yeah. you're just like you're stewing about it so it's approximately three times worse is what it's you're or at. like let's take the example of the you were saying you had to fix a draw like you were super frustrated about <laughs> losing that three hours yeah. or if someone someone cancelled plans on you and say you gained three hours back mm. and that because it was a plan you wanted to get out of you're like oh sweet mm. but then it's sort of that yeah. loses value after about 10 minutes yeah yeah so i guess that's all i'm saying is like pain seems to be disproportionately comparable to pleasure mm. and so once we take or what i was saying is like ignoring that fact let's say they're equal mm. i still think like the gain in welfare to the person eating the steak is not as because of their higher state of welfare it's not as valuable to them as it is to the animal who mm. experiences a lower base experience of welfare mm. but you could possibly have that argument flipped on its head that it's because it can't experience things to the same degree that i can mm. but i'm not sure we can be sure about that i'm not sure we can be sure of how much they experience but i think just on a yeah i guess um i think the point that peter singer makes is that it's just or maybe this is what you're speaking about it's it's it is fundamentally just the ability to push towards pleasure and avoid pain like that that is all the experience so basically his point is that's all the experience you need it's like in order to have preferences you need to be be able to experience suffering and whatever the opposite of that is so there's your framework of well-being it seems like it's a lot the logical end basically is to um stop the harming of animals in that way. Yeah, like it is certainly, I think it is a logical implication. Mm. Um, though I would say like the epistemological di uh, distance between sort of this point and that point is quite substantial. Um, I think we have intuition, like strong intuitions about what that point looks like and that it's like probably the best point to try and get to. But as you said, like the, all the calculus to sort of get there hmm. um, is quite long. And I guess like one could then make the case like, yes, that might be logical and rational, but you could probably also make the case that there's a ton more rational things to be working on at any one point in time. Mm. Um, um, so maybe we'll finish on... The role of epistemology and like what so like when you're looking at the different aspects of philosophy in like a in a very categorical nature like it's one branch of philosophy but like i sort of think it's the whole game like it, it really just is um what we know and how we know it and that should be at least or like maybe that's like the framework within which philosophy and everything else falls into um yeah uh i'll partially agree say with that. stuff <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah let me so i think you are correct like unless there is something that i am you know mistakenly forgetting 
epistemology is basically the frame of the philosophy picture. It's like everything mm. is can, like whether you care about ethics or what a meaningful life is, what it's like you need sort of like reasoning power and mm. for lack of a better term, justified true belief to sort mm. of even make any kind mm. of case. In re- like if we were to compare sort of philosophical epistemology to you know, cognitive science rationality, uh, the probably person who's done the most amount of work in this area that I'm familiar with is the psychologist, uh, cognitive psychologist Keith Stanovich, who mm. developed essentially what is like the IQ test for rationality. Mm. Like, because IQ and rationality aren't necessarily always sort of mm. correlated. So, mm. um, you know, for say, demonstrations or avoidance of confirmation bias, you know, IQ and rationality might be, uh, they might link together closely, closely correlated, but Mm. then um, avoiding sunk cost fallacy, say, they might not be, they might be decoupled. Um, So on overall, there's some link, but not not, um, a ton. Mm. And his, uh, say, like rationality battery or... Um, framework is in part to do with the avoidance of say errors and epistemological traps Mm. um, as you said but some of it is due to uh, what he calls mind wear gaps like just Mm -hmm. it's not a bias that's leading you to a wrong answer it's a not having the correct like reasoning power or knowledge to arrive at the correct conclusion Mm. so you know let's say we i could come to a irrationally erroneous conclusion due to confirmation bias like i'm just thinking about my world and like i'm testing hypothesis hypotheses in a confirmatory basis like i'm Mm. looking for yeses rather than no's to um you know pop reinfalsifiability So there's there's that way of being wrong, or there's Lyndon come to the the correct or rational answer on this problem, and if I don't say understand probability theory or decision theory, I won't be able to get to the yeah. So it's a mm. it's a mind what he calls a mindware gap rather mm. than contaminated mindware. Mm. So there's there's bugs in your program, or there's just software that you haven't even installed yet. Oh, just on that, have you have you heard Eric talk about hardware, software, and have you heard this? No. Oh, F. There's like an <laughs> an intermediate one that he talks about hardware, soft firmware. Ah, uh, yes, I've heard the term. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'll have to revisit it, but I think it's an intermediary concept. Oh, I'm not even going to go there. I'll have to revisit it. But continue. Sorry for interrupting with no, nothing. I, I think I essentially <laughs> probably made my point, uh, unless maybe I was going to follow on and just say, um, well, I guess put it this way. I'm really attracted to the uh, the Philip Day Philip K Dick quote. Reality, um, reality is when you cease to believe in it, what doesn't go away or something like that. Whether you mm. believe in it or not is like what still exists. Mm. 
So because we then have beliefs as humans, like it, like beliefs are a given, mm. I figure given that our beliefs are a given and given mm. that reality is a given, mm. we may as well try and marry them up in the mm. most like useful way possible. And that's the essence, I would say, of the the map territory idea. We want to have mm. the most useful maps possible. Mm. So no matter what, you're going to be drawing up your own map. No matter what, there is going to be some sort of reality, even if it is... Oh, maybe we won't go that far into simulation talk, but <laughs> no matter what, there is going to be some sort of reality. So you may as well be trying to pull those closer towards each other, is your point. Yes, I would say that, yeah. Excellent. Well, maybe we should leave it there then. Thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> Pleasure. All right, thanks. Thanks for joining the conversation. If you would like to connect please reach out through info at philosophyau.com. Thanks again and see you at the next episode.